brain surgery. <laughs> it's so weird to even say those words. You know, that's a saying, right? Like when someone asks you to do something that's not very complicated, what's the response? It's not brain surgery. And this was actually brain surgery. I'm, I'm under no illusion that, you know, this is going to somehow dramatically impact your life. But I really uh, have no choice but to share it with you. So let's talk about believing something, anything, whatever you want to talk about. Believing something doesn't necessarily make it true. But if it's true, ultimately in the long run, it'll be believed. I didn't believe in death until I was 24 years old. Um, I knew about death. I had read about death. I had heard all about death. And I maybe even got close to thinking I had a near-death kind of experience or what have you. But I didn't really believe death was real until I was in my mid-20s, a quarter of the way through the average human life expectancy. Because death wasn't real to me. It was a thing that happened to other people, faraway places and books and movies, but not to like, not to me. You know, it happened to family members. But the other is still so far away. The other is a it's so distant, even if it's the closest person to you, even if it's your best friend, your mother, your father, it's still other until you have to process this notion that you will no longer exist in your current form at some point in your life. It will come to an end. I was 24 years old and, uh, I was living my life the way I saw fit, and I thought everything was great. Uh, <laughs> well, I mean, maybe not great, but it was just, uh, just the way it should be. Um, I didn't even care what people th thought about the way I lived my life. Um, and then one morning, out of the blue, um, I began to experience these severe migraines and they increased kind of in their intensity over a period of a couple of days. Um, and so I had never experienced anything like that. And so obviously I sought some medical um, help and, and couldn't get it properly diagnosed. One guy thought I had uh, spinal meningitis, which was <laughs> very scary. Um, and, and so, you know, my family began, began to get concerned and went through the round of doctors. And, and uh, I finally um, found a, a neurologist who knew what he was doing and had a um, neurosurgeon partner who knew what he was doing. And um, they were able to determine that I had a – let me get this straight. Let me get this right here. It was a, a congenitally – excuse me. A congenital benign cyst, 
that was located just precisely in my head where it began to block the flow of fluid, um, cranial fluid. And, uh, and that little thing that was probably millimeters across um, was causing these debilitating headaches and, and, um, and I felt my spine getting weaker as the days went on in, in that interim when they couldn't diagnose me. And um, I was told that I needed to undergo brain surgery. <laughs> uh, it wasn't what I expected to hear when I went to the doctor that day. I mean, I, I thought it could have been a million different things, but brain surgery was not on the list. Brain surgery was not in the plans. And uh, at that point in my life, I thought, well, you know, I'm doing the acting thing or hanging out with my friends and I'm free. <laughs> free. Um, I was no such thing, but uh, yeah, there you go. So um, in the summer of 2001, I uh, underwent um, brain surgery. <laughs> it's so weird to even say those words. You know, that's a saying, right? Like when someone asks you to do something, it's not very complicated. And what's the response? It's not brain surgery. And this was actually brain surgery. I found humor in that. Gallows humor. But uh, I did find humor in it. I was also scared um, for the first time in my life because – not because of death, but that I hadn't even considered until that moment, until that time frame that death was real, that death was a thing that comes for everybody. And it's such a grim and heavy subject that we don't like to talk about it and that people want to hear uplifting messages about how great they are or about – how good life is, and life is good. Um, sometimes it's even great. But life ends for every single one of us. And I don't know that we take it all that seriously. I don't know, I don't know that we believe that. Even the staunch, diehard humanist uh, who believes that we're just, you know, atoms clanking around, I don't think it's really... I don't think it really posits a, a big problem for them to stop and consider death other than just stoppage of these atoms existing. It's just stoppage. Um, because we don't actually believe it's, it's something that happens to us. Um, and I remember, I remember being wheeled into that, uh, into that operating room on that day and still not quite believing this was going to happen, you know. Everyone always imagines these last-minute scenarios of, wait a minute, there's been a change in plans. <laughs> you don't have to undergo this terrible, terrible thing that you're terrified of. Uh, that never came. But I do remember one thing, and, I, and I, I'll never forget it. I was being wheeled into the room, the operating room. I had been dressed. I was ready. surgeon was waiting. And... Until that moment, I had never really, I had rejected the idea that there was a God in the universe. But I remember distinctly 
thinking and then saying out loud in a whisper, it's out of my hands now. And that wasn't just a statement of fact because it was true. But it was the first time I really in my life had acknowledged a lack of sovereignty over my being physically and otherwise. And that was, um, that was a marker for me. Maybe it was something I would revisit later, but it was a marker for me. And so I was wheeled into surgery. Um, everything went well, um, as well as you can be, as well as it can go, I guess. Um, but I don't obviously remember any of it until, you know, I woke up and regained consciousness in my uh, hotel room and I opened my eyes and my family was there as they all, as they were through this whole ordeal supporting me and, and they were there and, you know, they were happy that I was awake and I said, whatever I said to them, I'm not really clear on what I, I remember what I said, but they were giving me this very weird look and my mother started to cry and everyone looked at me in a way it's kind of like when you have something on your something on your face and no one really wants to tell you that's the look they gave me so i got up from my bed and i went into the bathroom and uh, i looked in the mirror and half of my hair had been shaved off and the other half had a row of staples running from here all the way back, probably three-fourths of the way. Staples, silver metallic staples. And I looked in the mirror, and I looked like Frankenstein. And that was a, uh, that's when it set in. So, so I spent some time in the hospital um, and I learned what it is to be totally dependent on others than myself um, and to totally trust in someone other than myself and to be as helpless as a newborn baby. Not trusted with any information, not trusted with any physical ability to, to get up and walk by myself to go to the bathroom, uh, 24 years old. This is when, you know, this is the age when really young men become men and people get married and start having children and, and gather themselves. And I had been cut down to the ground. And, um, and I, I, I don't really think it sunk in at that moment, you know, the road ahead but it was a long road. It was a long road. It's a road that I'm only now realizing that I've come to the end of. Uh, I had to, uh, once I was released from the hospital, I moved back home. Uh, no job, no income, no real prospects of, you know, putting together anything. I, I was having short-term memory lapses where I wasn't even trusted with certain information. Uh, I couldn't drive for a while. Um, 
So I went and I moved back into my mother's house. And that was just when you think you hit a low point, <laughs> keeps getting lower. Um, I really thought that was it for me. I thought that. What's the point? You know, if even if I was alive, even if I had survived this whole ordeal, what, what am I supposed to do now? I look like a shell of a human being that I once was. Uh, the family that I had loved me and took care of me, but friends gone. All the people that used to want to be entertained gone. Uh, Industry contacts, however scant they were, gone. Uh, everyone runs for cover. No one really knows how to deal with death. And yes, I, I survived this, but a person died that day. The, the young man with all sorts of hopes and dreams and what have you, on that bed, wheeled into that operating room, that person died. And I had no idea how to go about bringing that person back to life or even if it was worth it. I later realized that person deserved to be dead and buried. But at that point, you just want to go back to, to reset, you know, like the, like the 80s sitcom, right? The 80s sitcom is great because – the 80s sitcom gets to laugh while there's a relatively minor-ish problem introduced to a otherwise status quo condition. And by the 25th minute of the hour, man, everything's back to normal. Everyone's smiling. Life is just a happy place. And cue the theme music, and we'll see you again next week. And that's what I was raised on. That's how it would be for me. Except that's not how it is at all. And stuff just happens. And the randomness of life. I think that was, as I sat in my mother's <laughs> extra bedroom where I had made my newfound home, I think that's what, I think that's what struck me the most is the randomness of this. What just happened? What, what just happened to me? Where was I again? Oh, yeah. <laughs> My mother's house. <laughs> yeah. Yes, yeah, so I, I was living with my mom and we're, my, my little sister's there. She's about 14, 13 at the time, maybe, roughly, 12. Dad's gone. Um, and, uh, and we're all trying to, you know, everyone's trying to be supportive and, and they want to rally and say, you know, you're, you're going to be okay. But my mom, Lord bless her soul. She's still alive. <laughs> she would come in and check on me and I would have the most somber depressing music playing at any given moment. I'm thinking 
specifically uh, Radiohead's OK Computer, some other Radiohead songs, like on an infinite loop. And so she would come in and she would hear what can only be described as suicidal music, right? And who knows what she's thinking? I never even cared. That's the thing. That's how selfish this whole uh, idea of, 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 you know, suicide can be. And yet there's great pain and we endure these things. And we don't care what cost we stop this pain, this suffering, even if it's at the cost of making our parents or, uh, or our family, our beloved ones, even if they're heartbroken for the rest of their lives. I did not care because I was convinced that life had no meaning whatsoever, that we were random atoms banging around just Creatures from sludge who will return to sludge and bad things happen and good things happen and it is of no import. And I was convinced of that more than ever. And so, wow, it was a long road to recovery. Um, My memory was very uh, spotty. Um, Sometimes names would escape me. And to this day, sometimes I still do, but I'm obviously, you know, I've regained the vast majority of my memory functionality. Um, but I couldn't remember simple tasks, simple tasks that my mom would give me. Um, I had to work on being a human being again. Very fundamental things, uh, learning basic, basic stuff, brushing my teeth. I had the motor skills, but uh, remembering to do it. <laughs> um, Remembering things like, you know, directions to places I'd been a million times or um, just the the tiniest details of life. And through it all, you know, um, I would be remiss in saying that I was um, blessed to have the woman who is now my wife standing by my side, even when I told her to leave. Um Even when I said, this is, you don't want to be here. Just go. What are you doing? Uh, she wouldn't leave. And uh, my, mom, my mom called her an angel from heaven. And to this day, I am convinced that's who she is. Not perfect. Not perfect. She'll tell you that. But heaven sent, for sure. And, um, man, I don't even know what the road looked like coming out of all that. I just know that people my age were supposed to get a job now. <laughs> so I went about getting another job. And I went about, you know, trying to get my own place. And I went about thinking that if I just go through the motions, if I just have forward momentum to carry me, things will progress. And I'm here to tell you they do. I'm here to tell you that they do. 20 years on, I never in a million years thought 
I would, um, I'd have a family and a good job and a home and the things that people are supposed to, supposed to want. And I'm very blessed to have them. But if I told you that almost dying brought me to faith in Christ, I would be lying to you. Because almost dying happens all the time. People die all the time. People almost die all the time. Um, it wasn't that. Here's the thing about dying. Everyone knows about it, but no one actually believes it to be a literal personal event that is 100% guaranteed to happen to them. They pay with lip service and say, I, I know about that. I intellectually, uh, uh, I intellectually acknowledge it. But they haven't reckoned with what time is, when it ends for them, and what, if anything, is beyond that time period. I had neither. I spent my entire life as, well, quick story. <laughs> when I was a little boy, I was told that every Christmas, a man in a fat, a fat man in a red suit would break into my home and bring me presents that I wanted. And I was told that if I was a good enough little boy, that I would get even more presents. And boy, did I believe that. And I also believe that every Easter, there was a bunny who, again, broke into my home and dropped off chocolate eggs and other goodies for me if I'd been a good boy. Well, a few years after that, I began to suspect that they weren't telling me the whole story, my parents. And you know that one day when you finally realize, wait a minute, dad is Santa Claus. Dad's Easter Bunny. This is all a lie. Santa Claus being a lie was perhaps one of the most profound things I can recall ever happening to me, which seems kind of petty if you think about it. But at the same time, it also says a lot about what we're willing to do as parents, uh, just as human beings to each other. The lies we're willing to perpetuate to comfort one another. I could not believe that my mother and father thought it was a good idea to lie to their kid's face about <laughs> where these presents were coming from or where the chocolate eggs were coming from or that there was a fairy that would come take my now missing tooth that I put under my pillow and would replace it with a dollar or whatever. You know, how did they not think through the ramifications of this? I brought this up to them. How did you not think through how this would shake out? <laughs> You've just told your child there's Santa Claus, there's an Easter bunny, there's a tooth fairy. And this is real. And just trust me on this. And then they come to the logical determination that this is absolutely impossible. And then they go, wait, where did I hear this? Aha, the two people who have taken care of me my entire life, who have, who have uh, provided for me, protected me, um, nourished me, 
who I've depended on for my very being, fed me lies that they probably didn't even mean to do in, a, in, a, in any kind of malicious way. Um, for me, as a kid, that may seem uh, pretty heavy, but eight years old, nine years old, that's where I was. That's what I was thinking about. And, uh, and so I, I immediately assumed that this was what everyone was telling themselves. Everyone was telling themselves these stories to comfort themselves, to get through life's difficulties. So I was a, I would say I was a working atheist for the first, what, 18, 19 years of my life, um, more or less. Uh, yeah, yeah, and I thought I was super smart, man. I thought I was super smart, which is a, a big, uh, a big red flag. <laughs> um, so skip back to 24 years old. I'm more convinced than ever that because my life can be so randomly and brutally interrupted, cut down that, um, that there is absolutely no logical argument whatsoever for a deity of any kind um, to exist or have ever existed. And um, this was just kind of self-evident. So <laughs> as I worked my way back to a human being, uh, I decided that I was going to be the only God of my life. And I even had a shirt that I proudly wore. I wish I'd, wish I'd brought it. It would have been funny. And it said, I am God. Um, I wore it the, proudly the first year my wife and I got married. And uh, man, I love that shirt. Because I, I believed it. That was where my faith was. My faith was in myself, though I had been cut down to nothing just a few years earlier. I had once again, somehow, because my heart is obviously so hardened and, and just evil, <laughs> that I decided that well, I was in charge again. Um, that was the same year, by chance, that I had a seizure during a nice romantic dinner uh, with my wife at a Mexican restaurant. Uh, <laughs> again, out of the blue. The only thing I could think of was, you know, I'd been cracking my neck, but I've been doing that for years. Years. Why now? Um, so it was almost as if God was like, uh, excuse me, <laughs> Remember the thing? Yeah, it's happening again. You paying attention? Hello? Um, and there was no real uh, medical fallout. Um, you know, I went through all the neurological tests. Everything was fine. There was no other, you know, uh, additional issues uh, with my head, uh, at least the visible part. Um, and uh, so I got a clean bill of health, really, other than just to be careful. Uh, 
So in 2009, after a year or so we had been married, and um, <laughs> my wife came home. My wife came home one day, and she told me that um, <laughs> she told me I was going to go to hell. <laughs> and I'm like, what? What are you talking about? <laughs> um, what's wrong with you? She told me that if I don't believe in Jesus, I was going to go to hell. And I looked her square in the eye, and I said, look, um, I love you. But don't you ever bring this up ever again or this marriage will be over. And I remember saying it with all that full force of meaning it because hearing it had shook me to my core. Um, and so, so yeah, so the first year of our marriage, it, I really thought it, it was going to be over. I had this religious person living in my house, and I was this very proud, very evangelical atheist, if you can use that term. I mean, I I knew what I believed, and I knew why I believed it, and and this wasn't going to work. But it was that, at that moment that I wanted, because I wanted to cut down my wife's uh, declaration of faith, that I began to having always been someone who wanted to search out, you know, uh, the meanings of these worldviews. And I'd read everything, um, you know, Tibetan Buddhism, uh, Zoroastrianism. Uh, I had even at one point, believe it or not, I had read the Satanic Bible. And um, I just wanted to know what these people believed because I wanted to be able to speak intelligently about it. So... In order to uh, confront uh, my wife about her faith, I needed to know what I was talking about. So I had to crack open a Bible myself, something I didn't—I never in my life planned on doing, never wanted to willingly do, but I felt confronted in order to save my marriage. So I did it. Um, and I read. started in the Gospel of Matthew. And, uh, you know— I read it first like a textbook. Um, okay, this is what it says. This is what it probably means. I'd heard for years and no one can really know what it means. But then when I read through it and I had that version where Jesus' words, let, words are in red letters, um, it was the oddest thing. When I read those red-lettered words, they were as though he was speaking directly to me. Not an audible voice. Okay, don't, don't misunderstand me. I didn't hear anything. But the clarity was undeniable. It was as though this was a conversation, a one-way conversation, that I was on the receiving end of. And it was crystal clear the intent of the words. Even if I did not believe them, I heard them for the first time. So I continue reading. And I was going to just absorb all of this, and I didn't really tell my wife. I didn't want her to get excited. Um, and then I started randomly, at this same time, my brother-in-law, who I love and care for very, very much, um, who had been a born-again Christian 
from the time I first met his sister, was constantly coming at me and telling me things that I needed to, that he said I needed to know and, and, and would challenge me on my intellectual beliefs, my philosophical beliefs. And, uh, and so, you know, he was there doing that and she was there and then this book is there and then a series of events happened. Little details, probably too minute to really summarize here. I found myself walking into churches randomly in the neighborhood, looking around going, what do people do here? I didn't know why I was there. I didn't know what I was doing there, but I was there. And I remember talking out loud, thinking that's what you did. You, you spoke out loud and God then somehow heard you or something. But around summer 2009, um, I was alone. I think my wife was uh, out doing whatever. And she had grown silent about her faith. I had scared her, I think. I had intimidated her in a way that she just shut up and she said, I'm not going to risk anything by bringing this up. And she had left for the day. Um, and I was in the study or our study of our apartment and um, I was reading. And. I was reading the scriptures and uh, I, I don't really know how to like describe the events of that day other than to say um, as I was reading, I had this overwhelming drive to apologize. And I didn't really think anything of to whom I was apologizing. Uh, it was it was very obvious to me, and yet I had never done anything like that before. So I, I kind of got down on the ground and and I said to no one, <laughs> no one in particular, I'm sorry. And I didn't know what that was. I didn't know what that apology was. Um, but that later I realized is what is what repentance is. And it's what faith is. Believing that there's one whom you have uh, sinned against. And so... Uh, I just kind of crumpled up in a ball <laughs> and just wept <laughs> like I had never cried before. Um, and I had no idea what was happening, you know, and, and no one was home. And so I, I gathered myself up from the floor and I go and I sit on the couch and I try to make, make do with what, you know, what's happening, get my bearings. My wife comes home and, I play it off, and a couple days go by, weeks go by, and and I casually let her know one day, you know, <laughs> all those things you told me, um, yeah, they're true. I believe they're true. I told my brother-in-law the same thing, and 
it's not a very, you know, cut and dry kind of account. Um, most people have these grandiose experiences. Um, but it was years later and I realized and I studied the scriptures and I realized that, um, yeah, that was a, that was what, that was a born again experience. If that's what you would call it. And I know that I had radically changed inside. I had changed nothing on the outside. I looked the same. I acted the same as far as my speech, my mannerisms. Um, I was still on the outside me. There was nothing different. And yet in my heart and in my mind, there was a newness, uh, a uh, cleanness, if you will. I felt brand new. Uh, I felt like, uh, well, I, I felt like it was a new beginning. And I didn't understand any of that. And so uh, I look back now and eight years prior to that moment, I was waving goodbye on that, that hospital, that hospital rollaway bed. And I, I now see the, 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 the path I traveled. And, um, and I'm here to tell you that, that if, if I can go from that to that, and none of it by my own, you know, strength and well-doing and, and, and stick-to-itiveness, ball by the grace of God, that you can have that too. <laughs>